and welcome to the latest in our HSF Banking Litigation podcast series. We're in for a treat today. I'm joined this month, as ever, by Kerry Morgan, our Banking Lit Boffin, or to give her her official title, our Banking Litigation PSL. And with us is John Corey, one of our partners here and all-round great guy. Wonderful to have you with us. Uh, to get us going, we've got three cases that are going to be of interest to listeners, looking broadly at contractual interpretation. Uh, John, you're going to start with a, a reassuring decision of the Commercial Court looking at the interpretation of an investment bank fee clause in equity and debt finance raising. Can you talk us through that? Yes, that's right. Thank you, David. Uh, I've been looking at the decision in Macquarie Capital and North Sea Offshore. Uh, the reason I'm highlighting this one is that uh, although the court applied established principles of contractual interpretation, the outcome is quite interesting from an investment banking perspective. Uh, and it, it really shows, I think, um, a very commercial approach being adopted by the court. So by way of background with this one, there was an engagement agreement uh, under which the claimant investment bank, Macquarie, agreed to provide uh, financial advisory services, including uh, raising equity and debt finance in respect of the defendant's offshore wind farm. Uh, what's particularly interesting here is how the court upheld a pretty high level of fees that was being claimed by the bank. Uh, it was around 16 million euros plus interest. And that was upheld even though there had been a significant change to both the wind farm development and the finance structure. And the bank wasn't actually involved in raising the finance for the project uh, at the end anyway. The fees, um, however, continue to be calculated uh, relative to the level of the equity and the debt raised at the financial close. And that was in accordance with the terms of the engagement. Although the court was a bit critical of some of the terms of the agreement uh, for their lack of clarity, um, it, it, the flexibility in the, in the defined terms uh, came to the bank's aid. So I, I suppose it makes sense for the parties to have kept the drafting loose if they thought things might change. Yes, absolutely. Um, the, the court took the view that the sort of changes which uh, both the development and the finance structure underwent were within the reasonable contemplation of, of the parties when they signed up the contract. And so they deliberately kept the drafting loose so that the contract would cover their engagement in whatever guise it subsequently took. And as I say, you've just got to remember that you're dealing here with very high value, 60 million euros. It sounds pretty uh, pretty good news then for financial institutions who are providing these uh, advisory services. Yes, indeed. Um, it, it will obviously be fact-specific from case to case. Uh, and there's no, I suppose there's no need to feel too sorry for the developer in this case. The uh, period between the engagement and the financial close of the ultimate transaction was over three years. And the developer could have avoided the fees completely by terminating the agreement at least 12 months before the financial close, but it chose not to do so. Uh, we've also got a blog uh, post on this one if um, anyone would like to read uh, more about it. Great. Uh, good, good news story to kick us off. Um, and then, Kerry, sticking to this theme of, of contractual interpretation, you've got a, a case considering the operation of a frustration clause or a force majeure clause. Why, why have you picked this one out for us? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the case of classic maritime and Limbungern, thanks for the pronunciation tip, David, <laughs> uh, which, uh, as the name suggests, is actually a shipping case. Uh, but the reason that I've chosen to cover it here is that there is, of course, fresh interest in cases of frustration and force majeure, given that Brexit is still on the horizon, and of course, in the context of LIBOR discontinuation, one of our uh, pet topics. 
So um, I think we covered the Canary Wharf and EMA decision in an earlier episode for this reason. Is that the one where the uh, court held that Brexit was not a frustrating event under a commercial lease, if I remember correctly? Is that one settled? Yeah, exactly. And exactly right. It has indeed now settled. Um, Anyway, so in this case, the defendant, which was a charterer, was unable to make shipments because of of a dam burst, and it tried to rely on a force majeure type clause to avoid liability for damages. And I say it was a force majeure type clause because one of the key issues, in fact, between the parties was whether the relevant clause was, in fact, a force majeure clause or something called an exceptions clause. But for present purposes, I can skip over all of that because the Court of Appeal said that labels don't matter and you have to look at each clause as a matter of good old-fashioned contractual interpretation. So the reason the charterer was keen for it to be a force majeure clause is because of a line of cases saying that there is no need to establish but for causation when relying on a contractual frustration or force majeure clause. So here, that would have meant that the charterer did not need to show that but for the dam burst, it would have performed the contract. And this was all relevant because the charterer was failing to perform the contract even before the dam burst. Right, so the, the, the charter was going to have basically real problems if it needed to show the, the but-for causation. Yeah, that's right, David. And However, because the court said that labels don't matter, it went on to construe the clause using the usual tools and found that the wording of the clause in question did require the party relying on the clause to prove but-for causation. So, in a nutshell, the charterer could not rely on the force majeure type clause to avoid liability because it could not show that it would have performed the contract but for the dam burst. And therefore, it was on the hook for substantial damages. And I think this is an interesting development in relation to frustration and force majeure clauses because it suggests that the court will look at the language of the clause in question to see if the party placing reliance on it needs to establish but-for causation rather than the blanket approach suggested by the previous authority. And this might very well be relevant in due course if parties attempt to rely upon um, Brexit or LIBOR discontinuation to wriggle out of a contract that they're otherwise not performing or do not want to perform. And so if you're interested in more detail on this decision, please see our blog post link in the show notes. As you say, Kate, it's helpful in these uncertain times to get some more case law and frustration and, and force majeure. Stepping firmly back into the world of banking, though, John, uh, I think I'm right in saying that you're going to take us on this month's deep dive. Yep. Leaping off the uh, diving board into the water, (laughs) the case I want to talk about is AMC and Amethyst. Um, We're still in the realms of contractual interpretation here, but with uh, the High Court's decision, uh, we're now looking at um, a standard form LMA clause. Um, So very much a banking case. So the particular clause of consideration here um, uh, is one you'll all be familiar with, uh, an LMA no-set-off clause. Uh, so just to clarify, a clause which prevents the borrower from setting off any sums uh, from amounts outstanding under the loan. Uh, the, the court, the High Court here, gave effect uh, to the clause and prevented the borrower from relying on not just legal set-off, but also, importantly, equitable set-off. Uh, the, the borrower was um, trying to set off various alleged claims against the lender uh, from the lender's claim to recover the outstanding loan amount and interest. And John, just to to butt in there, obviously no set-off clauses are aimed uh, from a commercial perspective at preventing cross-claims when a 
uh, a lender try to secure payment of a loan. But in terms of the distinction between legal set-off and equitable set-off, what's the practical difference? There is an important difference. Uh, Legal set-off is only available where the two claims are for liquidated damages, which can be fairly easily quantified. So uh, if we know um, from from the wording of the contract or we have a a judgment debt, uh, you you have a number. Equitable set-off, in uh, in contrast, is available for unliquidated damages. So, for example, damages um, for a claim in negligence. Um, There's been some previous authority suggesting that the LMA uh, no-set-off clause works for both types of set-off, legal and equitable. So to that extent, the the claim, the decision, isn't groundbreaking. But it's always interesting when the court tests an LMA clause, uh, which is why I wanted to include it here today. So just to take a closer look at the background to this decision, the defendant borrower had failed to make a number of interest payments and to repay principal under two loan agreements. The claimant lender sought a declaration uh, that an event of default had occurred under the loan agreements and also an order for the outstanding interest and principal due. In resisting the claim, the the borrower tried to rely on various alleged claims against the lender by way of set-off. The the detail of those isn't particularly uh, relevant. And the lender, in response, um, uh, relied on the no-set-off clause in the loan agreements, uh, the first of which was in the standard LMA form, uh, but the second was not. It it was relatively straightforward for the court to reject the uh, defence based on equitable set-off for the first agreement. And in doing so, uh, the court referred to a previous case where a standard form LMA no set-off clause was found to preclude both equitable and legal set-off. But it reached the same result in respect to the um, no set-off clause in the other agreement as well, uh, the one that wasn't in standard LMA form. Uh, It gave various reasons for this, but I think the most striking uh, of, of them was a quote from another case which said that, and this is the quote, the average businessman uh, who was told that a clause of this kind applied to legal set-offs but not equitable set-offs would hardly be able to contain his disbelief. Well, that's interesting, John. <laughs> Helpful to see the court taking a robust approach to no set-off clauses in the standard LMA form and, in fact, more generally. But just to, just to double-check, so was this decision following a full trial or not? No, and it's quite interesting. It's um, This uh, was an application by the lender for summary judgment, uh, and I think that's quite uh, an important confidence boost for lenders. Um, that the, the court was willing to make this uh, d- call on an interim application without incurring the time and costs which could have been wasted by taking the matter to full trial. So it's good news for financial institutions. It's the court flexing its muscles, and it's the procedural rules doing what they were supposed to do in the tin. Promising sign then for these uh, these sorts of mm. challenges for lenders. Um, well, in which case it's worth checking out the blog post on this for more info, details in the show notes as usual. Um, now, Kerry, you're going to round us off with a couple of more procedural updates relevant to financial institutions. You wanted to start off by looking at uh, enforcement of judgments and the new Hague Convention. What's the latest on this? Yep, that's right. So the new Hague Judgments Convention has finally been adopted. Uh, This is the new treaty on the recognition and enforcement of foreign judgments in civil or commercial matters. So this has been on the cards for over 20 years. Uh, The 2005 Hague Convention, uh, which was limited to jurisdiction and enforcement of judgments, um, where there was an exclusive jurisdiction clause, was essentially a political compromise. And the new Hague Convention goes much further in that it's not limited to judgments based on exclusive jurisdiction clauses. And it's been described as a game changer in international dispute resolution. Does it deal with jurisdiction or is it just enforcement? 
um, actually, the nude convention relates only to enforcement and not jurisdiction. So in that sense, it's narrower than the 2005 convention, which dealt with both. Um, and apparently there is yet another new convention in the pipeline dealing with jurisdiction for non-exclusive jurisdiction uh, clauses. Anyway, one of the reasons this is of particular interest is in the context of Brexit, with some pinning their hopes on the new convention as another way of easily enforcing English judgments post-Brexit, as the recast Brussels regulation and Lugano convention disappear from the equation. But the new convention is far from being a panacea. Apart from anything else, it will only apply between those countries that sign up, um, it will only apply once ratified, and then there will be a 12-month delay from ratification to it coming into force. And even then it won't apply unless the proceedings leading to the relevant judgment were started at a time where the new convention was in force, both in the state of origin and state for enforcement. So a good few years down the line, potentially. So here's hoping that an alternative agreement can be reached with the EU that would allow some sort of continuation of the current regime as much as possible, including the UK joining the Lugano Convention in its own right. So watch this space. We live in hope. Um, and news on an appeal to the Supreme Court. Yep, that's the other point I wanted to note. The Supreme Court has granted permission to appeal in the KBR and SFO case. Listeners will no doubt be aware that this was the decision in autumn last year where the High Court dismissed a judicial review brought by KBR, essentially allowing the SFO to compel the production of documents located outside of the jurisdiction. This is clearly of interest where documents uh, can in effect be seized abroad as part of a criminal investigation, which was exactly what happened here, and then potentially then opening up another stream of documents ultimately disclosed disclosable in follow-on civil proceedings. So it's worth looking at the background to this decision in the various blog posts we have on it, uh, which are all in the show notes. Brilliant. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, as Kerry says, those links are all there, and as ever, you can subscribe to the blog there too. But for now, I just want to say thank you to Kerry as ever, and thank you to John uh, too for your insights this month. We'll have you back again soon, I'm sure. Until next time, though, thanks for listening. Thank you.